Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crypto Hipster Podcast. This is your host, Jamil Hassan, the Crypto Hipster, where I interview founders, executives, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, musicians, you name it, in the world of crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin, and everything else related to Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, and today I have I had two amazing guests. Uh, I have from DMG Blockchain, I have Sheldon Bennett, who's the CEO, and I have Stephen Elisku, who is the COO. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Very welcome. So let's kick things off. Um, ask you first, both. Um, what is your background? What are your backgrounds? And are they logical backgrounds for what you are doing now? That's a good question. I don't know if there's a logical background for most people involved in Bitcoin, but uh, maybe ours are logical. Um, so, you know, my background, I'm, I'm a Canadian, grew up in Canada, uh, born and raised there, uh, worked overseas for many years, came back to Canada. Uh, well overseas, you know, the most logical company that would kind of fit into my background is Cisco Systems. So I worked at Cisco and uh, during that time, you know, I was first introduced to Bitcoin from the uh, engineers that were playing around with these new uh, protocols uh, at Cisco. It was kind of more for fun, just kind of something new and novel that didn't exist before. I didn't think a lot of it at the time. I actually was setting up my first Bitcoin node at my uh, apartment and was going to be doing this way back in 2009. Um, only to be distracted by my kids who wanted to play some, some video game. I think it was like some kind of Lego game on on uh, on uh, on some video console. And I think I never got around to actually setting it up and doing it. And years later, um, you know, I'm in the world of Bitcoin, uh, wishing I would have been collecting Bitcoins back in 2009. Uh, but yeah, from, from my background, I mean, the closest is Cisco. Before that, I worked in blue chip companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers and Ernst & Young. Uh, for most of my career, so sort of more on the uh, on the financial side of uh, and consulting side of uh, services. Awesome, that was Sheldon, and then Steve. Yeah, and I have a semiconductor background, which lends itself really well to understanding Bitcoin mining and the dynamics that drive the industry. I would start in engineering, worked in product marketing, and then eventually I was an equity research analyst for nine years at UBS. So understand the major semiconductor companies and essentially the how those management teams work. And they apply a lot of discipline, which translates well to the Bitcoin mining industry. I think that served us well in terms of advancing our own fleet in the appropriate way. Sheldon and I actually worked together at Bitfury, which is one of the original Bitcoin mining companies, had their own proprietary silicon. So that was very insightful to see that whole process, semiconductor manufacturing applied to Bitcoin. Uh, I was in finance, Sheldon started, he was had a Bitcoin of uh, Bitfury Canada. We built out uh, what eventually became Hot eight, and that was really genesis of mining and containerized mining in Canada. Uh, <clears throat> I joined, uh, Sheldon founded DMG in 2016. I joined in 2017, uh, and uh, it's been a very interesting journey. 
So I want to ask you about that journey, but what, what makes DMG blockchain unique in its approach to Bitcoin mining? I think Steven sort of touched on a few things. Um, you know, both of us uh, came out of Bitfury. Um, for those that have been in crypto for a long time, as Steven said, Bitfury is one of the first large-scale Bitcoin mining operations, you know, not only doing their own silicone, but, you know, they had ran their own pool. Um, they built all their own equipment. Um, one of the things that I did along with another Bitfury employee was design out the block box, which became the standard that was used for every crypto container ever made in North America and around the world. It had not been done in a containerized form before we uh, spent our time. We spent about a year with three different manufacturers, engineering and designing and trying out prototypes. And so, you know, um, from, from the early on days of uh, building infrastructure, uh, building miners, connecting it to a pool and sort of running it from, you know, uh, the infrastructure, you know, power up to a pool. We had a little bit of a more insight into Bitcoin mining than most people would just come in and they would buy everything and connect to a pool or they would, you know, um, you know, maybe build some custom parts and connect to a pool. And that's pretty much it. That, that's about it. So when DMG was founded, we looked at what we had been doing in Bitfury and what we could do that's a little bit different. And so, the, the, you know, the, the foundational layer of infrastructure, we still custom build a lot of our stuff. It's actually faster and cheaper, we find, than buying off-the-shelf stuff from manufacturers um, and more reliable. Um, so we, we do like to build our own customized PDUs and other things like that. Um, not, not network switches. We don't. We don't. We don't. We don't engineer those. <laughs> um, but uh, we pretty much build everything ourselves. Uh, we buy the miners from the large different uh, manufacturers. But what we did a little bit different was um, we really got into the software stack, and we believe as a company that you know you can make a Bitcoin once as a miner, and you can sell that Bitcoin to fund your operations. Or you can put it on your balance sheet as an asset, you know, to have something there to show your your investors um, that you're you're building your assets out. But you know, you're kind of done as a Bitcoin miner once you mine that Bitcoin, you're sort of finished. It's either becomes cash or an asset on your balance sheet. We looked at it a little bit different and said, well, we know so much about pools and we know so much about blocks being created and we know so much about how Bitcoin moves in the ecosystem that when we started DMG, we also went and bought a company called Bloxy out of Silicon Valley which was uh, a data analytics company for Bitcoin. Um, we took that investment, created some more products, and eventually got ourselves to making a Bitcoin mining pool called TerraPool. Uh, a little different than pools you'll hear of in the industry because TerraPool is the only pool that runs completely on sustainable energy or clean energy. So, um, you know, you can technically, you know, start uh, Bitcoin mining on practically any pool you want. Uh, except for ours, you have to apply to ours and we look at your energy and uh, we do some some calls with you, figure out if you're 100% clean energy or some portion clean energy um, and work out whether or not you can join our pool and what the terms and conditions are. Um, that makes it unique from the point of view that um, the Bitcoins that we work with in the ecosystem of crypto mining are all carbon free. 
So when you look at this ESG narrative about, you know, power consumption and environmental damage and all these things that people talk about, DMG is sort of the only company out there that can put its hand up along with our members on our pool uh, and say that, you know, we're not, we're, we're net zero emission when it comes to crypto mining. Um, and we think that's, that's a unique feature of our company, but that pool is, has a few more other things that are quite unique. Um, we've created uh, a technology uh, that we apply to our pool that filters out uh, OFAC blacklisted wallets. So the U.S. government, Department of Treasury, um, across America, North America, and Western countries, most, most countries you do business with, um, the financial community has to follow these OFAC, Office of Foreign Asset Control, regulations. So you can't, you know wire money here, do transactions there with, um, you know, people or countries or, or organizations that are on this list. So they've been deemed terrorist or, or bad in some way by the U.S. government. And if you do, there'll be sort of financial consequences for that and, and you know, and can be worse. Um, so, you know, there is a list of blacklisted wallets that the U.S. government maintains and says you uh, as a, an American company or company that has to follow OFAC and U.S. laws um, are not allowed to do business with these wallets. And so we created a technology that filters them out of our pool blocks, um, which we don't believe is censorship. A few people think we're censoring the Bitcoin blockchain, but our point of view is we're not really censoring it. We're just giving optionality in the way that those transactions will be picked up by a different pool. So pools that don't don't filter out, uh, you know, bad actors uh, are OFAC listed wallets. So, you know, Antpool will pick up that transaction and, and put it through, but we won't pick up that transaction and put it through. So the transaction will still get through, but just not if you're on our ecosystem working with TerraPool. And from that technology, we kind of did the inverse of that, uh, which was a little bit harder, actually. And we created a technology called Petra that actually imports transactions into our pool. And so we can um, allow uh, organizations or individuals um, to send us transactions that they would like us to uh, mine in our blocks and post to the Bitcoin blockchain. And we created this technology uh, originally focused in on you know financial institutions and exchanges. So if you are you know Bank of America and you want to send 10 bitcoins to say BlackRock because they're in the news a lot. Um, if you don't want it to go through an, an ant pool or an F2 pool or some other foreign pool that has, you know, OFAC issues, AML issues, KYC issues around all of its users and operations, you could actually send that transaction to us. We would put it into one of our blocks where our hash rate is clean energy. It's OFAC compliant. It's AML um, checked, so we, we we look at the counterparties in our in our blocks, um, and it's KYC. We know all of our miners; they're not in North Korea or Venezuela or um, other you know rogue states that are on the sanction list of the U.S. government. Um, and so we create an ecosystem that with our mining pool that's unique to any other pool out there. And we believe that that is bringing a lot of value. Now, I can let Stephen speak a little bit because I don't want to hog everything. The one thing that we didn't expect out of all of this was the creation of ordinals. And maybe I'll let Stephen take over so I don't hog the conversation. <laughs> Thanks, Sheldon. And uh, in, in terms of ordinals, we're pleasant surprise. We're 
certainly encouraged by what Casey Rodemar has done over the past year in terms of really enabling what we feel is creating more value from the Bitcoin blockchain than has been done historically. It's the killer app to date had been the trading, trading of, of Bitcoin. Really now with the advent of ordinals, it's all this additional content eventually even smart contracts. What, they may be simple smart contracts, but still being uh, having code executed on the Bitcoin blockchain. We think all those possibilities are exciting. It creates new use cases, which in turn helps to, to drive transaction fees, not hopefully astronomically, but to a point where the miners are being subsidized to the point where the fact that transaction fee that the block subsidy is going to be halved in the next few months and have subsequently every four years becomes a lot less material because now we have all these use cases that are driving transaction fees. So we think that's exciting. Uh, we're unique in terms of we can place premium content onto the Bitcoin blockchain uh, to do those inscriptions. Uh, we can exceed the 350 kilobyte limit that is often placed on artists today because we're creating the block. There is no inherent limit in terms of how that's placed on the Bitcoin blockchain. It can be done and it's done with carbon neutral energy. So for the artists, many of whom are ESG minded and are using other who have been using other chains that aren't necessarily proof of work, this helps at least mitigate some of those concerns. And they know that their content will now live forever. And that's really exciting. The mutability is what drives the value of the Bitcoin blockchain. And what's the reason people want to put content to have these, these uh, digital artifacts inscribed onto the Bitcoin blockchain is that immutability aspect that they know beyond, whatever they place on the Bitcoin blockchain will live beyond their own lifetime. So kind of mm -hmm. summarizing about what why DMG is different is think of it as we provide a stack, Bitcoin mining at the base, on top of that, the pools. The pools give us a supply of blocks, which then in turn we can insert content, whether they be ordinals or they be transactions from financial institutions. And what we didn't also say is financial institutions need significant infrastructure. So to address that portion are custody solutions, which we've alluded to on our earnings calls, we will be talking more about that in the coming months is what we've said, as well as partnerships with exchanges. So key has been our relationship with Bosonic. And we hope that that gets expanded over time, especially as we can offer to the market custody solutions. So that is the way financial institutions work, where they custody their Bitcoin. That can be sent directly to Terrapool, which in turn, with the Petra technology that Sheldon described, we insert that transaction onto the Bitcoin blockchain, and it's assured before the financial institution or the ordinal creator 
that that content is done is placed on the Bitcoin blockchain in a carbon neutral manner. And having, as Sheldon said, we're not about censorship. We're not about necessarily grabbing fees because we have uh, these special attributes for Bitcoin relative to the rest of the network. This is about offering optionality. So we don't expect the majority of the network to utilize what we have, but we think there's a significant audience of high value uh, artists or uh, creators of, of art, as well as the financial institutions where these are high value transactions or aggregated transactions, that they wanna be able to settle transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain and be able to do that without adding carbon to be able to satisfy their ESG initiatives. So this is, this is key to what makes DMG different is we have this stack and we're providing optionality where it hasn't existed to date. So, and I think you answered another one of my questions just now too. Um, I, I, I was gonna ask you, do Ordinal serve Satoshi's vision as helping Bitcoin be a peer-to-peer -peer payment network? And I think the answer is yes, because you're securing the network, right? Well, yes. I mean, Satoshi is as smart or even otherworldly as he, as he was to be able to be able to create this protocol right in the depths of the financial crisis. The thing is, at that time, the financial the financial industry was on the brink of collapse. And I was certainly there as an analyst at UBS during that time. It was scary. It was very scary watching what was going on. And the timeliness of Bitcoin is just, to me, is just amazing that it it's something that essentially was born out of that event, if it just if you want to call it such. Um, and, you know, it, it was a different time. Uh, Satoshi always felt that the value of the Bitcoin blockchain would drive transaction fees. Now, the fact it's being done in a somewhat different way and that Bitcoin itself is not necessarily a world currency, at least at this point. Uh, from our point of view, we're pragmatic. So that's just fine by us. And uh, I've heard Casey Rotemar speak, and I, I asked him this question about, is this an issue? Do you see this as a potential issue with Satoshi's vision? And he also answered very pragmatically is, you know, all of making the Bitcoin blockchain more useful, which in turn drive, drives the value, which in turn makes it more secure. And it's this positive feedback loop. I think in the end is what to us assures us of that immutability aspect that the Bitcoin has legs that will continue to go on. The economics for a miner will be there. But, you know, for us, I think part of it is, we aren't necessarily focused on being the biggest miner. We think that's an important business and securing the blockchain is important, but it's all these other value added services on top of mining that is really our focus. And, you know, Satoshi could, didn't necessarily even imagine all of these use cases. 
And I, I think in the end, he might, you know, who's to say what he would, you know, what he would think of this. Uh, certainly the purists may have an issue, but I think part of why companies, why technologies are successful in the long run is they continually adapt. And I think this is a perfect example of that. I agree. Yeah, I was, a lot of people don't realize how important transaction fees are to the Bitcoin ecosystem. And so because the block reward's been so big, you know, 50, 100 coins, 50 coins, 25 coins, 12 and a half, six and a quarter now and going down to three and eight, um, you know, as that bounty or that block fee disappears and new coins are minted and you rely on transaction fees, uh, if you don't have enough transactions going through, um, you know, one of two things are going to happen. Either um, uh, there's not going to be enough money for the miners to operate, which would take away from the security and drop the hash rate, uh, which isn't a good thing. I think it's the Bitcoin blockchain is one of the most secure. Um, or two, um, you know, there will be some way that transaction fees are so expensive to help prop the miners up so that they can stay, you know, cash flow positive and operate that people won't want to use it because, you know, it, you know, if you can wire a million dollars to Japan for a thousand dollars and it costs you a thousand dollars in transaction fees to move a million dollars worth of Bitcoin to Japan, you know, you kind of lose that idea of friction that uh, we were trying to overcome. So by having ordinals added in, you know, as a new form of transaction fees, that aren't there with the transactions that you would normally have between two wallets moving Bitcoin. It's a, it's a, it's a way to help the miners have the revenue they need to stay afloat and keep this network going. Because at the end of the day for the user, the network's free except for the transaction fee. So there's, it's not like a bank where you have to pay your $30 a month to have a checking account plus all the other stuff you do. This is pretty much free. So when you need to use free stuff, there's always a cost to make it operate. That cost has been, you know, covered by the new block rewards. But, you know, we don't have that many more years before those block rewards are pretty much gone. And now it's just going to be transaction fees. And so, you know, by, by Casey creating something like Ordinals, I think it's a net positive effect to helping the system continue to grow and be, you know, uh, um, be able to sustain the Bitcoin mining uh, companies and individuals out there to make the network work. Awesome. The other thing is I would add is just, you know, just like in networking, Sheldon and I both have some networking backgrounds and we think about the, the layers of the, the, the network model where you go from physical to application layer. So you essentially you you have multiple layers to decouple the pieces. So each layer can do what it does well. And the Bitcoin blockchain is phenomenal as, as an immutable network that has created, that has a token that effectively is acting as a store of value. And you can have other layers to, such as lightning or liquid to, to do the act as a medium of exchange and not try to force fit a single token to do everything and create this multi-layered model, which is effectively anchored to the Bitcoin blockchain for that immutability aspect, but leverage other technologies to get the low friction to, to minimize transaction fees. So we think you can have your cake and eat it too. 
It requires probably more complexity than Satoshi initially imagined. And I think, you know, we think that's all okay. It's just, that's the way technology typically evolves is there is this evolution, there is this splitting, decoupling. Um, but ultimately, if you just kind of look at the history of the Bitcoin blockchain, it's remains the, the largest market cap. It's sustained that over now 15 years, almost to the day. And uh, from our point of view, Bitcoin as a store of value uh, going forward remains and Satoshi can still have his vision because of the enablement of that of that layer one blockchain. Awesome. So I want to shift gears a little bit. I thank you for, the, for that. Um, you know, we have a halving coming up this April, which means we're going to be kicking off a new four-year bull cycle, right? Um, so there's going to be things that are changing, right? Transaction fees and the rewards and all that. But every cycle seems like there's some kind of, you know, massive gain. And then there's a blow up. Last, last, last cycle, it was bankruptcies by, by these uh, centralized exchanges, right? So what are the, what's the good and the bad with this next cycle, with the ETFs coming about, with the next having, you know, what do we need to look out for? And how can investors safeguard their assets so that, so that we don't blow up spectacularly again? What's, what do you see as the next four-year cycle and what to look, to look out for as far as the good and the bad? Yeah. Stephen and I hate talking about the future because we really don't know. Um, but we've seen quite a few cycles. We've been in this for quite some time now. Um, you know, when you talk about the good and the bad, I mean, obviously, um, of these cycles, you know, one of the good parts, at least for us, is the uptake. A lot more people using Bitcoin, a lot of institutions putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet, you know, more wallets created, more people understanding what it is. Um, so just the overall growth of usage is great. Uh, we like that. We obviously like the appreciation in price because we're a Bitcoin miner and that's our main revenue. Um, you know, but the downside of all this is it is a new industry and we've had, you know, I don't know if you want to call them bad actors. Maybe some of them are. Maybe they're just immature companies or, you know, just people haven't had that much experience in digital assets. But when you look at some of the bankruptcies, you know, FTX being the largest, but Celsius, Voyager, Gemini and so on, um, you know, uh, you know, Bitcoin miners as well. Uh, their bankruptcies, Compute North being the largest um, core scientific coming out of it. Uh, looks like they're going to come out of it successfully. And others that went bankrupt. There's a lot of reasons for this, um, but, you know, you can segment into two parts. I mean, there's a difference between a miner going bankrupt and an exchange going bankrupt. Those are two different things because they're doing two different things in the market. You know, an exchange has people's money um, and is, you know, transacting it into different coins and whatever they're doing. Um, when an exchange goes bankrupt, um, it's probably more damaging uh, publicly and to authorities than when a miner does because a miner is more you know whether it's public or private it doesn't have so many retail customers and institutional customers that are affected by the bankruptcy um but a lot of this bankruptcy uh, could have been avoided um by the fact that these exchanges that did go bankrupt they weren't following regulations that a normal exchange you know of equities or, or, or commodities would follow so they didn't separate custody from their trading platform, 
you know, which is quite common. Um, you don't see, you know, uh, traditional exchanges custodying assets unless they have a custody company that's fully insured to do that. So this is how you have these breaks in internal controls like FTX had in Celsius and so on, where they were custodying customer assets and intermingling them with their own operations, which is, you know, technically a no-no in the world of, of looking after other people's money. Um, and so because they had been set up in a way which sort of skirted a lot of the regulations that nor you would normally fall, follow as a, as a broker dealer. Um, it led to this. When you see what the U S government's doing and other governments, they're all cracking down on this. You know, how did we let these exchanges grow so quickly taking, you know, citizen money and have, you know, not really be regulated or skirt the regulations. And, you know, you're, you're, you're hearing more about fines and different things and, jail time for some people and and deservedly so they i mean if, if you do something that is pretty much you could tell is illegal um you should get in trouble for it uh the other side of that is i can't believe so many people would put money into these organizations and trade with them without doing some due diligence and finding out where is my money who is holding it what's the insurance on it what happens if there's a problem whether it's exchange or not it could be anybody um that, that holds money of yours so um, I think that was sort of both a bad situation because you had a lot of people getting into companies that would trade crypto without doing any due diligence and just thinking this is all fine and good because they have an open sign uh, versus, you know, people that do have an open sign that take other people's money skirting regulations. And, you know, just like I said, deservedly so, this should have blown up. The, the problem with that for our type of companies that we're not involved in that business and it affects us. So, so you know, we definitely don't like that these things happen. We would have liked that, you know, the FTXs and the Voyagers would have put the controls in and would have got their, you know, a proper custody company and, and protected all of their users uh, the way they should have um, and the way that most you know, financial institutions would, would do this. Um, but the one little difference, because we spent a lot of time with different organizations trying to get coins from us into their exchange or into their holdings, is we did a lot of due diligence trying to find a way that you know we could um, manage our coins uh, from because we have to sell them to operate, um, and we did end up investing in a small company out of um, San Francisco called Bosonic, um, an instant exchange. We brought up a little bit earlier. The reason we invested in it is because they were the only exchange we could find that didn't hold our coins, and so they did something called cross custody net settlement. And so when FTX went bankrupt, up to the hour they de declared bankruptcy, we were actually trading against FTX and we didn't lose a penny because they had to custody their coins into a traditional custody holding company and cash, just like we had to do that. And the Bosonic communicated between the two custody companies for the transactions that happen between partners. So the assets were there. So if we sold 10 coins for $45,000 a coin, we would get $450,000 cash, would come over to custody account of FTX, not FTX itself, and be transferred to us. And our 10 coins would go over to the custody account of FTX without going into an exchange. So if the exchange goes bankrupt, your assets are safe because they actually sit with your custody. And this is the only thing we could find that we felt safe enough to put our coins in because we weren't putting our coins with FTX. We weren't putting them with Celsius. We weren't putting them with Voyager. So they weren't going into this omnibus wallet of uninsured, unaccredited, you know, non 
sort of custody, legally custody proper entity. They were going to an actual custody that company that is fully regulated and insured and all these types of things. And so this is the one thing that we've learned through all of this is that, you know, just because it's a digital asset, just because it has the word crypto in it, doesn't mean you should fail in your due diligence of figuring out who has your money and how it's being held. So, so that, what, that was a, a big learning lesson for us and I think everybody. What I would add to this in terms of just what investors should do, if they hear that, that there's there's a new token, they're going to make a thousand percent or there's 15% yield on a stable coin or something, they should really be careful. You know, I, as a former analyst, I tell people with the speculative part of your portfolio, which is maybe 3%, a portion of that should be Bitcoin. So I'm always very careful what I say as somebody who has been in, in the investment community. And people are, you know, obviously can, can do what they want, but I always try to suggest that anything in crypto is uh, speculative, even Bitcoin, and it should represent a relatively small part of a typical portfolio. Now, over time, that may change as Bitcoin becomes kind of uh, uh, much more substantial in terms of market cap, especially now with the ETFs. At least historically, that's what I've advised people. It's interesting you both talked about Bosonic. I, I did interview Rosario from Bosonic a couple of years ago. You know, uh, great company over there. Um, so I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier. And you said that there's more mod there's modern technologies. And when I think of modern technologies, I think of AI, I think of quantum, I think of other rapid innovations and in semiconductors, right? Um, how is how is that all gonna affect the future of Bitcoin mining and will Bitcoin be obsolete by these innovative advancements or will they be an added bonus to the Bitcoin mining infrastructure and operations? That's a, I mean, it's a great question. I think there's lots of different ways to answer that one. Um, you know, I think Bitcoin's not going anywhere. I think this idea of having, you know, a digital asset that is, you know, I'll call quasi-government regulated, depending on how you look at it, or not government regulated. I think there's a lot of people that like that. I think that, you know, corporate America is coming to accepting it as a digital asset that, you know, they'll have the right governance to bring to their customers. Um, I think that, you know, as Stephen said, you know, people are looking at it as another asset among others that um, you can put into your investments and feel that there's going to be you know, a good chance for growth on it. Um, it is one of the few and it probably maybe the only one that hasn't had, you know, a hacking or a theft or whatever, something large that you would say, oh, this doesn't work. You know, you know, unlike Ethereum, well, there's a reason why there's Ethereum Classic. <laughs> so, um, you know, like, uh, so it, it's it's done quite well. And as it continues to grow and the hash rate continues to grow, its resilience gets stronger and stronger. So we always thought of Bitcoin as, you know, by owning Bitcoin, you're kind of investing in the most secure layer of technology there is in the world. Um, and and who, who wouldn't want that? So that that's a great thing. Um, you know, with the world of AI and quantum, um, are two different things. You know, we see, 
you know, AI potentially growing faster um, as an, you know, uh, a business uh, than, than Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is that the demand for AI is a little more general than perhaps the, the demand for, for Bitcoin as an asset. Um, but at the same time, we kind of see AI is, is a bit expensive right now to get into that business. Um, it's very, very expensive equipment. There aren't a lot of manufacturing for it. It's sort of like crypto a little while ago where you know, the price of a, a Bitcoin miner was you know, inflated extremely high because there's so much demand. AI has the same thing. And we, we think that'll flatten out in the, in the future. Um, but the actual market size of it um, is going to be quite large. Um, you know, we, Bitcoin, we believe, will be quite large over time as well. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's really hard to say, you know, where each are going. But I think both are staying, obviously. Um, quantum is a weird one. Um, you know, the way the cryptography works in crypto, or I mean, I'm not in crypto, but in Bitcoin, because there's lots of different cryptos out there. Um, it's sort of quantum resilient. Um, there is a mechanism within the Bitcoin core to change the coding of Bitcoin. So I think that if something would happen, you know, out in the future, that would uh, be a technology gain that you could, you know, start breaking the blocks using quantum technology. Um, I think the community would react quickly and make it quantum resistance or change things. Um, yeah, nobody's right going to just rewrite the train, the the chain, and, and people are just going to sit around and let it happen. It's just not going to happen that way. Yeah. So I think it's going to be resistant. I'm not. I mean, I, I don't worry about quantum. It came up a few years ago, um, but it's it it, uh, it. I don't think it's a really something that's on on the forefront of you know the things that uh, the Bitcoin Core people are trying to manage um you know obviously ai would have a hard time trying to uh win a block um you'd have to have a lot of ai <laughs> power i think the cost of doing that would be more than the block win <laughs> so so just because the, the the way that, that the technology works and the, the memory and how it computes is completely different than how um how an asic miner operates so yeah um, I, I our big concern with ai is just so much money is going into AI. If you think about NVIDIA, Wall Street expects it to be a $100 billion company. And that's there's just with the, the whole entire Bitcoin mining equipment market, it's just a few billion dollars likely to be this year. So it's just so much more investment is going there. Is there going to be the investment in the equipment that keeps it current and that can properly secure the Bitcoin blockchain. And that's more of uh, our concern. Also, I think, you know, we think I mean, for better or for worse, the growth of AI is also gonna raise the energy consumption issue that <laughs> will pale, <laughs> you know, Bitcoin will pale and to relative to what AI is gonna consume in terms of gigawatts over the next few years. The Bitcoin network maybe consumes about uh, 20 gig, 15 to 20 gigawatts, and the AI is going to be much larger than that, especially if we go a few years out. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that makes the energy question less of an issue, but it's always crypto is the regulators have not been very favorable looking at crypto mining, and if between EVs and 
so demand for for vehicles, energy demand for vehicles, energy demand for AI. There's also obviously the concern that uh, crypto mining could get or Bitcoin mining could get squeezed in that as well. Yeah, and I just have... to add that, it, when you look at Bitcoin mining over the last, call it seven, eight years, maybe a bit longer. I mean, Stephen, it's, it's great to speak to this, but I think we were, what, 56 nanometer. We were doing GPUs before ASICs came in at 26 and then 16 and, and then sort of 7, 10. So, you know, the chips have been getting more and more efficient for the amount of compute they can do for the amount of energy going in. And, you know, Bitcoin miners as energy intensive have really pushed the efficiency side and a lot of money has gone into the R&D to make better chips to do that. Um, you know, AI is a little bit different. The margins are different. The way it operates is different. And it may not be pushing the chips as hard for efficiency. So you may find that although AI is more acceptable um, as a technology in, in society, it may be, uh, you know, burning through a lot more energy than it needs to just because you will have uh, traditional data centers that aren't as focused on the efficiency of their chips versus how Bitcoin miners have been very focused on it. I'm not saying it's a fact, but we kind of see that the, the, the GPUs and that, um, you know, they're not really going down the same path that, that we've gone in the crypto industry of really pushing um, as hard as we can to get efficient uh, equipment. Yeah, if, if you look at Apple equipment versus op operational expense, in Bitcoin mining, they're way more even versus in uh, with regards to uh, in GPU compute uh, facilities. Uh, it's much more capital efficient. I mean, much more capital intensive. So the they're not worrying nearly as much about the energy. And if there's just a lot more of that being built out, uh, you know, as Sheldon says, they're just not going to be paying as much attention to the energy piece. And uh, I'm not saying that they won't uh, pay attention to energy efficiency, quite the opposite, because energy creates heat and heat is always a limiter in terms of being able to operate systems. But the bottom line is there's just going to be a, a lot of energy uh, consumption growth related to AI way more than people even are thinking. That makes sense, actually. A lot of sense. <laughs> so um, I'm, I haven't even thought about how much it's going to be, but yeah, it makes sense. So th thank you. I want to th actually well, thank you both for an amazing conversation. Um, do I have anything else? Um, I, I don't. Um, well, I know I do. I have one more question. <laughs> I do. Um, what do you think is going to happen with these ETFs? Um, not necessarily price of Bitcoin, but my thoughts, and I could be totally wrong, is that each of these companies in the U.S. that has applied for an ETF, um, BlackRock and all of them, they're going to fork Bitcoin. and They're going to have their own Bitcoin in their own ecosystem. That's my opinion. Um, I could be totally wrong. But I want to see um, what... what what do you that, think? That would be a tough one. That'd be like Bitcoin SV and Bitcoin Cash, right? See if you can keep the dollar value high because you still have to have the usership. And so you would have a lot of Bitcoin, but would people use it is the real question, right? Um, versus a traditional Bitcoin. I think 
you know, part of the answer might be um, that would help on these applications potentially. And we don't talk to any of these people um, that are put the applications in is, is to have an ecosystem like we built with Terrapool that is OFAC compliant, that you know all your counterparties in a block transaction. You know, we could easily uh, work with the Black Rocks and the Fidelis out there and all their Bitcoin buying and holdings and all that could be held, you know, energy uh, neutral. It could be held OFAC compliant. It could be all done by KYC hash rates and AML transactions. And that would probably make the regulators, you know, calm down quite a bit. It's, you know, blocks being done by different organizations around the world, hash rate around the world and transactions that we don't want to see in blocks. Um, and I think there's a piece of that in all of it. There's probably some other pieces in there, but, um, you know, the way we built our technology was very much focused on this regulatory issue. And, uh, you know, we think that that's probably the way that they should be thinking instead of trying to fork and create a new Bitcoin chain. It'd be easier just to use, you know, the right technology and the right ecosystem to be moving those ETF funds around buying and selling and holding. And so that's kind of so, our, our thoughts on it. I mean, we're optimists. We think this is going to improve just regulatory acceptance of Bitcoin. And ultimately, central banks may hold Bitcoin as they do gold today. So instead of Fort Knox, you'll have Fort Box because it'll be on a server. Hopefully, hopefully working with us. <laughs> I like that. Fort Box. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I want to I want to thank you, gentlemen, very much for your time today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot and appreciate it. And uh, I have one last question. It's probably the easiest one I asked you. Um, how can people find out more information about you, about DMG blockchain, become a client? How can they do any of that? Yeah, I mean, we're a public company on the TSX Venture Exchange, so you can look up our symbol, DMGI. Um, you know, our, our website's dmgblockchain.com. Uh, we're on you know, Twitter, or X, DMG Blockchain, so you can follow our tweets. Um, so, yeah, it's really easy to get a, a hold of us. Um, believe it or not, when we get questions coming in through our, our contact us page. We actually read them and talk about them. So, <laughs> so we're pretty good at answering questions. Um, you know, don't ask us what the price of our stock will be because we don't know. And we, even if we could figure it out, uh, we wouldn't be allowed to say, but um, yeah, our website's the easiest way to get a hold of us, email us, um, check out our stock. Um, it's, it's easy enough to find. I think we're in the U S for OTC as well. Um, which I think is DMG G F. That's right. Wrong. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're easy enough to, to get a hold of and happy to talk to anybody that wants to have a, a conversation about our company. Awesome. Thank you both very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Jamil. Really appreciate it. You take care.